welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Rachel Maddow, Counterspin, NPR, and Slate Magazine. Six years ago, our war against the country that attacked us on 9-11 ended, and American troops started to come home. At least, that's the impression you would get if you went back and read George Bush's infamous Mission Accomplished speech, which our friend Keith Olbermann still uses as a benchmark in time to sign off his show every night. Although the Bush White House initially blamed the Mission Accomplished banner on the sailors of the USS Abraham Lincoln themselves, the speech itself gives lie to that lie. It makes clear that the whole point of the event, banner or no, was to take a victory lap. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. America is grateful for a job well done. Americans following a battle want nothing more than to return home. And that is your direction tonight. You are homeward bound. You are homeward bound. Homeward bound. Exactly six years later, how many deployments have those troops seen since? Looking back on the anniversary of the mission accomplished speech, everything from the promise that the troops were coming home to the flight suit strutting to the blatantly untrue swaggering statements about what the war was for make it seem like it's of another era, like it's a, it's a caricature of the Bush presidency. We have not forgotten the victims of September the 11th, the last phone calls the cold murder of children, the searches in the rubble. With those attacks, the terrorists and their supporters declared war on the United States. And war is what they got. Actually, what they got was an inexplicable war on a totally unrelated country in the Middle East that had nothing to do with 9-11. I'm sorry. And this much is certain. No terrorist network will gain weapons of mass destruction from the Iraqi regime because the regime is no more. And because they didn't have weapons of mass destruction anyway. And even if they did have those WMDs, uh, you think that getting rid of the regime would have made sure that they ended up in safe hands while you abandoned the country to looting and anarchy and civil war and death squads? You think those non-existent WMDs would have just magically found their way into a vault? or something. You know, yelling at George W. Bush's speeches about the Iraq war, I realize, is very last year. It's very pre-Bama. It's old news, like the Iraq war itself, right? Except for the fact that it's not. The U.S. military announced that three more American troops were killed in Iraq in combat operations in Anbar province. We've still got 142,000 American troops serving there. And if you're really ready to go tripping down what feels like memory lane but is actually totally still going on and has never been fixed, consider this legal news about what is still the largest private for-profit contractor in the war zone, KBR. You might remember our coverage on this show of KBR's contract to provide electrical work for U.S. facilities in Iraq. At least 18 American troops are believed to have been killed by electrocutions there. It was electrified water coming out of a showerhead in barracks in Iraq that killed a young Green Beret named Staff Sergeant Ryan Maseth last January. Again, he's one of more than a dozen troops killed in Iraq, not by enemy fire, but by electrocution. Army investigators have classified Sergeant Maseth's death as a negligent homicide. 
KBR was responsible for the electrical work in that building. But they continue to deny any responsibility in this case, and they continue to hold the U.S. government contract for providing electrical services in Iraq. KBR filed a motion in federal court to have Ryan Maseth's family's lawsuit against the company dismissed on the grounds that the federal courts don't have jurisdiction over what KBR did. They say since they're providing services to the U.S. military, it's a military matter, and civilian courts therefore have no say. Of course, they also expect that they can't be held accountable under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. After all, they're not military, they're a civilian company. So they're neither civilian nor military and can't be held accountable in either venue. How convenient. In that courtroom in Pittsburgh this week, on the sixth anniversary of the Mission Accomplished speech, KBR re-upped its efforts to avoid paying any penalty for the lost life of one very promising young elite army soldier. And on this sixth anniversary of the Mission Accomplished speech, we are reminded that no U.S. official has ever paid any penalty for the made-up, out-of-whole-cloth lie to the country about why we started the ongoing war in Iraq in the first place. You that never done nothing But build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes and you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through you brain like I see through the water that runs down my drain Fox host Bill O'Reilly has been passionately defending Bush-era torture for some time, but on April 23rd, he took his argument further. Not only does torture work, but it's actually broadly popular, too. Said O'Reilly, quote, According to a new Fox News Opinion Dynamics poll, most Americans want tough interrogations of top terror killers. When asked if they would support using torture on Osama bin Laden to get information, 56% say they favor doing that, including including 42% of the Democrats polled, 39% oppose, close quote. Well, it's true that Fox's poll found a majority favoring torturing Osama bin Laden, but you might as well ask people if they support torturing Satan. That sort of question doesn't tell us much. But was that the only question the Fox poll asked? No. O'Reilly didn't quote the other responses because they would have undermined his case. For instance, one Fox question asked the following, do you favor or oppose allowing the CIA in extreme circumstances to use enhanced interrogation techniques, even torture? to obtain information from prisoners that might protect the United States from terrorist attacks. The response was 48% opposed, 43% in favor, and 7% responding that it would depend on other circumstances. Which means O'Reilly's categorical claim that most Americans want tough interrogations of top terror killers was deceptive, even as compared to Fox's own polls. Outside the Fox bubble, 
in what we'll call the real world. There are polls, like a recent ABC Washington Post poll, that show that Americans by a large margin, 58% to 40%, say that torture should never be used, no matter the circumstances. Check out the singer in the band Must have been a blast to be dubber in demand Dancing in the palms of outstretched hands But now you can't reach Your fingers broken Look at that boy, oh he can dance Beautiful circles, killer in a President Obama made clear that the question of whether or not Bush administration officials might face criminal investigation and prosecution for their actions is not solely his call, and it might yet happen. With respect to those who formulated those legal decisions, uh, I would say that that is going to be more of a decision for the Attorney General within the parameters of uh, various laws, and, and I don't want to prejudge that. That's going to be more of a decision for the Attorney General, he says. Whatever the President has said about what he prefers about criminal prosecutions of Bush administration officials for torture, it's not really his call to make. The Justice Department is an independent agency that makes its own calls about how to enforce the law and what actions or suspected actions warrant criminal investigation. The law, in other words, in America, is bigger than the presidency. And as Michael Isikoff reported in Newsweek, Attorney General Eric Holder is now considering appointing a special counsel to consider such investigations. In addition to the renewed public attention to this issue and the president and senior White House officials having to answer questions at every public appearance about it, and in addition to the Justice Department now considering steps toward prosecution, the decision to release the Office of Legal Counsel memos about torture has had one other major ramification thus far, and it is this. Government officials who knew about the interrogation program, but who were sworn to secrecy as long as the program was still officially classified, they're now free to talk about it. And because of that, we have new major news to report. In May 2005, Condoleezza Rice's counselor at the State Department, Philip Zelico, gained access to the memos we have now all seen since they were published last week. Mr. Zelico is a lawyer. He says he believed at the time that the memos were wrong. He believed that they presented a distorted view of the law. And he put his concerns in writing. That fact is really important. In the big picture here, what was going on in the Bush administration is that they were providing supposedly authoritative legal advice, which said that things like chaining people to the ceiling and waterboarding them and stress positions and sleep deprivation and locking people inside tiny boxes, according to their supposedly authoritative legal analysis, those heretofore secret legal memos we've all now read, they said that those techniques were okay, according to U.S. law. We are now learning that competing advice was distributed inside the Bush administration that said no, that analysis was wrong. 
According to Philip Zelico, writing at the website of Foreign Policy Magazine, quote, my colleagues were entitled to ignore my views. They did more than that. The White House attempted to collect and destroy all copies of my memo. Joining us now is Philip Zelico, former counselor at the State Department, a trusted advisor and deputy to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. He also served as executive director of the 9-11 Commission, and he's now a contributor to Foreign Policy Magazine. Mr. Zelico, thank you so much for taking time to join us. Glad to be here. First of all, let me give you the opportunity to correct me if I have mischaracterized anything. Is, is what I have said about your involvement uh, in this issue thus far, is this, have I accurately characterized it? Yes. Okay. Um, so you first saw these Office of Legal Counsel memos in 2005. What was your, um, your reaction to the legal reasoning in those memos? Uh, many years earlier when I had been a, um, a law student and had been a practicing lawyer, I had worked actually on issues of uh, treatment of prisoners and that whole body of constitutional law. So when I saw the memoranda, I was struck by the fact that even aside from the policy problems, the legal reasoning seemed deeply unsound to me and I wasn't sure that the president and his advisors understood um, just how potentially questionable and unreasonable many lawyers and judges would find this reasoning. And so I thought it was important to just say, hey, there's another view here of this law and a lot of people would regard the views in these memos as, to say the least, uh, outliers. So when you say that judges might see it, we suggest judges are one of the audiences that might not be persuaded by the reasoning in these memos. Were you thinking ahead to the purpose for which these memos were drafted, which was essentially, I mean, it's far, hard for those of us outside of government to sometimes understand what an OLC, what the purpose of an OLC memo is, but essentially to provide a, a defense in case people were accused of acting illegally in ways that were described in those memos. Is that what you were thinking of? Yeah, Rachel, perhaps uh, just a little bit of background to put this in context for your viewers. America has fought a number of wars in our history, including against unconventional enemies. This was an interrogation program, however, for which there is no precedent in the history of the United States. We've never done a program like this before. So where the administration is moving into uncharted waters, they're clearly doing things that folks know are as legally questionable. That's why these opinions were requested, because there were questions about whether this sort of conduct was lawful, since it was unprecedented. So here the Justice Department is coming down and saying, look, this is a murky area of the law, but here's what we think you're allowed to do. Now, whether it's a good idea to do it is another question. Whether it's moral is another question. The question before them was, is it lawful to do this? And the Justice Department has the job of giving authoritative guidance for the executive branch on how the U.S. law should be interpreted in the conduct of our actions. And the memo that you wrote, the document that you wrote, that you've described the website of Foreign Policy Magazine, essentially said that they got it wrong when they described what you are allowed to do under U.S. law, that their reasoning was flawed. It didn't take account of the relevant case law, for example, that should, they should have called on to prove their point. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. I, now, look, I'm, I'm just one point of view. I looked at their point of view, and it didn't strike me as a mainstream or reasonable way of construing um, the relevant standards standards of treatment, of the definition of terms like cruel and human or degrading. Uh, they were using an interpretation of how to comply with that standard that I didn't think 
any judges or lawyers outside of the administration would find plausible, and I wasn't sure other folks realized just how implausible it was. So, now, of course, I'm just offering my opinion. Now, I was there as part of a team representing the State Department, um, acting as an agent of Secretary Rice, who had grave concerns about all of this. But uh, others in the administration were perfectly entitled to uh, say, no, we looked at the law and we have the Justice Department. They know a lot more about this than you do. But look, they were entitled to, to hear an alternative point of view and, um, and figure out whether or not they wanted to reevaluate their opinion. Rather than just disagreeing with you or saying that they thought that you were wrong and the Office of Legal Counsel memos that you were rebutting were correct, why do you think they tried to destroy every copy of the memo um, that they knew existed? And how did you find out that they did to try to destroy copies of the memo? Well, I found out because I was told, uh, I mean, we're, we're trying to collect these and destroy them. And you have a copy, don't you? Mm. But I, uh, the... Uh, um, I know that copies were retained in, uh, in my building. Um, and a, as I mentioned, uh, Secretary Rice uh, um, understood what I was doing on her behalf. I was her agent in these matters. And the, uh, so I think copies still exist. Why would they destroy them? Um, that's a question they'll have to answer. Obviously, if you want, you want to eliminate records because you don't want people to be able to find them. Am I right in thinking that they would want to erase any um, evidence of the existence of a dissenting view within the administration because it would undercut the legal authority of the advice in those memos, the advice that, th that those techniques would be legal? That's what I thought at the time. I had the same reaction you did, um, but I don't know why they wanted to do it. In thinking about accountability for official actions here, it seems to me that the authors of the OLC memos may find themselves in some trouble, um, either professionally or I guess potentially criminally, if, if they wrote opinions to order, if they came up with legal reasoning to support a preordained conclusion. Uh, it also seems that government officials could find themselves in trouble if they knowingly used these memos as a tool to get a policy implemented to do things that they knew to be illegal. Um, could the existence of your dissenting memo be evidence that government officials did know that these things that they were authorizing really were, at least possibly, illegal? Um, all it shows is that they were presented with an argument that says, uh, your interpretation of the law appears to this one fellow to be unsound. Now, of course, uh, lawyers disagree all the time about how to interpret the law. And it's now up to our institutions and the Justice Department to sort out whether or not uh, their rejection of these views was just another disagreement among people interpreting tough law or was something more than that. Um, the Justice Department is already looking into how these lawyers did their job. I'm happy to wait and read their report and find out what they've learned. I have to ask, given your description of how you felt about these memos and the actions that you took, uh, some of the other reporting um, that other people have said about you in terms of your role in the administration at this time, I have to ask if you ever contemplated resigning um, over this issue, if you felt quite strongly about it. No. Um, you have to understand, this is a battle that had been going on for months beforehand and went on for months afterwards. This is chapter nine of 32 chapters. Uh, of, and actually, by uh, the end of 2005 and on into 2006, um, may, we were achieving major changes. Um, and uh, we were 
achieving major changes in what the standards would be that would govern what we were doing, major changes in what the CIA was actually doing in the sites, and important changes in the way we were beginning to talk to our allies about these problems and move towards bringing these people out of the black sites and into the light where they would see lawyers, the Red Cross, all of that. That's a decision that we achieved in 2006 that was made by President Bush in 2006. So we were in a process of working this from the inside while people like Senator McCain were doing really important work on this issue on Capitol Hill. Supreme Court delivered a very important opinion on this, Hamdan versus Rumsfeld during 2006. So we were part of a combination of forces that was trying to move our government in a different direction, to turn the page and get this moving in a healthier direction. And I think we began turning that corner in 2006. I feel like I'm starting to understand your your reasoning and the way that you approached this, just from talking to you now and from what I know about your actions, but it, there is one thing that still doesn't, just doesn't resonate for me, and that is in 2005, when you found out that this memo that you wrote, which said this Office of Legal Counsel attempt to say that things like hanging people from ceilings and sleep deprivation and these other things is illegal. It's wrongly reasoned. There's them saying this is legal in you, under U.S. law is, is an inappropriate re, legal, uh, legal understanding. It's an inappropriate understanding of U.S. law. When you found out that they were collecting your memo with that criticism in it and destroying it so there would be no evidence of it, at a time when you knew that they were going to carry out those techniques, which you must have believed were not legal since you had seen the legal rationalization for it. It's hard for me to believe that you would not think about resigning or blowing the whistle or saying publicly what was going on at that time. Um, it was my job to fight this with every ounce of energy at my disposal using the legal means in front of me. And frankly, that's the same way they should have approached their job is uh, work within the institutions you've got, the institutions our country gives you. Um, they weren't committing an act of obstruction of justice by trying to destroy copies of the memos, and they did not succeed in destroying copies, all the copies of these memos. Just because they disagree with an alternative view uh, doesn't mean that my view was right, but um, it was important to register the fact that, hey, um, folks need to understand if they didn't already, a lot of lawyers might believe that this is a radical, indefensible, unreasonable interpretation of the relevant law. Um, they heard that argument, they chose to move on, we continued the fight to change the policy, and ultimately did change the policy with help from Congress and the courts. One last question for you. If members of the National Security Council Principals Committee or Deputies Committee um, did say thumbs up to specific techniques like waterboarding or like hanging people from the ceiling that were mentioned in those Office of Legal Counsel memos, and they said thumbs up to that on the basis of there being legal authorization in those memos, do you think those officials committed a crime when they okayed it? Um, I'm going to obey the same advice I would give to President Obama, which is when people argue that crimes have been committed, our country has institutions to sort this out. One of those institutions is the Department of Justice and the Attorney General. President Obama ran on the platform that we're going to depoliticize the Department of Justice. Well, let's do that. Let's, uh, let's refer all those questions to the Department of Justice. You have a question about whether these people will be prosecuted. The Department of Justice is looking into the matter. The Attorney General is looking into the matter. Uh, 
they'll sort this out the way they sort out other allegations of crime, and let's just see where it goes. And that's that's my approach too, is I'm not gonna rush to judgment, I'm not gonna try to prejudge or politicize the issue. Um, it's important folks understand there's another point of view and was another point of view on some of these matters. Now let our institutions do their job. interrogation techniques adopted by the U.S. government after 9-11 came from an unlikely source, psychologists who had trained the American military to resist torture. Some of these same psychologists ended up helping the CIA apply those methods to detainees, methods many now believe constitute torture. Today, we're going to hear from one military psychologist intimate with this community, Bryce Lefevre worked with many of the key players for decades. He also worked as a psychologist in Afghanistan's Bagram detention facility in 2002. Lefevre agreed to give reporter Elise Spiegel a different view of the ongoing torture debate, how these military psychologists viewed and view their role in interrogations. In early 1990, around 15 military psychologists met in a small conference room at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Though the psychologists worked in different communities across the country, their job was basically the same. They helped torture people. Or more specifically, they helped members of the U.S. military inoculate themselves against torture by subjecting them to torture techniques. They spent their days hitting and insulting, isolating and waterboarding, all with the hope that by exposing soldiers to these terrible experiences, they might prepare them, physically, psychologically, for capture. Their work was part of a larger program. The name of that program was SEER, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And though it had been around since the Korean War, according to Bryce Lefevre, 1990 was actually the first time the SEER psychologists had ever gathered face-to-face. And it was merely to meet the other SEER psychologists to talk about mutual problems, to talk about training issues, to get on the same sheet of music with one another. Two of the men in that room, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, are now regularly featured in the many news accounts of harsh interrogation techniques. Because they're the psychologists who originally proposed applying these harsh tactics to people detained by the U.S. government, they're almost universally vilified, decried as people whose work has tarnished the image of America. But in 1990, says Lefevre, they were seen by their colleagues in the SEER program in a very different way. Patriots doing the best possible training for Americans who might face captivity. We all saw ourselves that way, and I think we were all very proud of the SEER curriculums and the SEER schools that we were attached to. Lefevre himself had just started work at a SEER program out at the Naval Station in San Diego. Like the other psychologists, he spent his days meeting out physical and psychological abuse, work he says he actually came to love. The training was uh, fascinating to watch. Uh, It's always fascinating to watch 
uh, people in extreme situations, how they grow, how they learn, how they adapt. Um, it was a human laboratory. Anne says Lefevre, to the psychologists working in this human laboratory, there was one thing they felt convinced was absolutely and abundantly clear. These techniques worked, even with people with unflinching inner strength. You know, the tough nut to crack, if you keep him awake for a week, you torture him, you put, tie his arms behind him, you have him on the ground, anyone can be brought beyond their ability to cope and resist. And according to Lefevre, can be forced to give up information, though it should be pointed out that contention is very much in dispute. So there they were, this small group of psychologists involved in a very peculiar kind of work. Then, says Lefevre, in 2001, during one of their yearly meetings, which just happened to fall shortly before the 9-11 attack, they got a visit from Joseph Matarazzo, an extremely well-respected former president of the American Psychological Association. This visit, says Lefevre, crystallized their sense of mission. He taught us a number of things. One thing that he said was, if I could further the cause of America using my skill as a psychologist, I wouldn't hesitate to do it. And that, in a sense, became our marching orders, was to help America and use our skills in any way we possibly can as a psychologist. Of course, these marching orders took on a whole new color in the wake of September 11th. America's house was broken into on 9-11, and somebody's got to raise their hand to stop it. And at some point, you do anything you can to stop the assault. And early on, um, there was a sense of desperation in intelligence gathering. And so, according to Lefevre, it was really only natural for people with this kind of experience to suggest that the techniques be used on detainees. That's the word he used, natural. Anyone could have made those recommendations. I think that uh, Jim Mitchell, Bruce Chesson were the main players in that. But anyone assigned to those SEER schools would have probably made the same recommendations. He points to one of the techniques that was approved by the Justice Department lawyers. After discovering that one of the detainees had a morbid fear of bugs, interrogators wanted to lock the man in a small container with an insect. But if you came to me and you said I had a bug phobia, why well, would prescribe the exact same treatment, which is an exposure treatment? In any phobia, the treatment of choice is exposure. In other words, direct, prolonged exposure to the thing you're afraid of, and you overcome the fear because you calm down in the presence of this thing that triggers your fear. So the things that are called you know, torture or exploitative um, are also therapy techniques. Now, to be clear on one point, Lefevre says he was not involved in any way in organizing or implementing the application of harsh tactics to detainees. He says only a few psychologists were in the loop. But according to Lefevre, when it did become clear the techniques were being used, he didn't hear a huge amount of dissent in his circle. The idea that some of these Taliban and al-Qaeda prisoners would be pushed and pushed hard and maybe even abused I don't think a lot of people lost sleep over it early on. Like many of the psychologists who were involved in some way with these interrogations, Lefevre now says that he wasn't completely in favor of using the methods. He preferred what's called rapport-building techniques and thought that the harsher methods, if known, could damage America's image. Still, Lefevre says, he feels that the psychologists involved are being unjustly vilified, characterized by the press as unethical in a completely unfair way. The press loves to report something provocative. And psychologists who are supposed to be do-gooders, you know, the idea that they would be involved in producing some pain just seems to be, you know, at, at first blush, um, something that would be wrong because we do no harm. But the real ethical consideration would say, well, 
by producing pain or questioning of somebody, if it does the most good for the most people, it's, it's entirely ethical. And to do otherwise would be unethical. Now let's pause for just a second. This description of ethical obligation is not something you would hear from a civilian psychologist. For a civilian psychologist, the only concern is the patient, the person sitting in front of you. But according to Lefevre, this group of military psychologists saw things very differently. The ethical consideration is always to do the most good for the most people. And America happens to be my client. America's, Americans are who I care about. I have no fondness for the enemy. And I don't feel like I need to take care of their mental health needs. Lefevre's basic message is this. The motives and actions of psychologists like Mitchell and Jessen have been misrepresented and misunderstood. Anyone who wants to to throw stones in this situation really needs to step back and, and figure out what they would do themselves in these situations and um, not just uh, kind of be ivory tower critics, but get down and and put get either get in the situation or keep or really keep their mouths shut if they don't most of the time they have no idea what they're talking about. Lefevre says the psychologists involved were very conscious of the ethical implications of their work and that he and his colleagues when faced with difficult decisions referred to something he called the front page test. Which is would I be proud of my actions if they were written about or displayed on the front page of the newspaper. Now, of course, the actions of psychologists are on the front page of the newspaper. And, says Lefevre, he finds absolutely nothing to apologize for. Elise Spiegel, NPR News, Washington. Just because I'm losing doesn't mean I'm lost. Doesn't mean I'll stop. Richard Cohen told readers he is against torture, but then carved out a bizarre case for torture. For starters, Cohen explained that the public debate over torture, quote, has been infected with silly arguments about utility, whether it works or not. Of course it works, sometimes or rarely, close quote. Well, that's hard enough to understand as is, but his one example of torture working doesn't actually make the case at all. Cohen referred to Abdul Hakim Murad, an al-Qaeda operative arrested in the Philippines in 1995. As Cohen put it, when authorities told Murad that he was about to be turned over to Israeli intelligence, he spilled the beans. So the mere threat of torture worked. Cohen's history, though, is all wrong. Murad was, by almost every account, actually tortured by Philippine authorities, and according to many accounts, 
relying heavily on the court records of Murad's prosecution, the valuable evidence in this case was obtained before he was tortured in the course of routine police investigation. Cohen goes on to explain that if threatened torture works, then real torture must also work. Quote, some in the intelligence field, including a former CIA director, say it does, and I assume they say this on the basis of evidence. They can't all be fools or knaves. Close quote. That makes even less sense than his other point. Some people in any field can believe just about anything. That doesn't mean they're right. Cohen is clearly confused about torture. He's also confusing. President Dick Cheney, who has been leading the defense of the Bush administration against the charge that when they authorized the torture of prisoners, they broke the law and they should therefore be prosecuted. Honestly, Vice President Cheney's popularity is such that he probably could not sell ants to hungry anteaters right now, which might explain why calls to prosecute Bush officials have been growing and not fading away since he's been leading the defense. But now Condoleezza Rice is weighing in as well perhaps inadvertently, as she was caught on tape responding to persistent questioning from a student at Stanford University. Check it out. And I just said, the United States was told, we were told, nothing that violates our obligations under the Convention Against Torture. And so, by definition, if it was authorized by the President, it did not violate our obligations under the Convention Against Torture. A special thanks to our friends at the Young Turks for making that, avail that tape available to us. Condoleezza Rice essentially says there that the president said it was legal, so it was legal. Condoleezza Rice is choosing to ditto the most ill-conceived, notorious, damning, self-incriminating, failed self-defense to charges of high crimes and misdemeanors ever offered by a woebegone American politician. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. Exactly. That was 1977. Richard Nixon being questioned by David Frost from behind the comforting shield of a pardon that had been provided to him by his successor, Gerald Ford. 22 years later, no such pardons have been offered to Bush administration officials, and the clamor for criminal investigations continues. 61 anti-torture protesters were arrested outside the White House, part of a larger group demanding the immediate closure of the prison at Guantanamo. Republicans released a Bush and Cheney-style fear-up video implying that the planned closure of Guantanamo should make Americans feel unsafe. In the midst of this political hurly-burly, one legal case was resolved. It was resolved with a man's day in court and a guilty plea, a means of bringing criminal cases to an end that didn't used to be nearly so controversial. 
Joining us now is Michael Isikoff, MSNBC contributor and investigative correspondent for Newsweek magazine. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, Rachel. So Ali Almari is the man whose case ended in a guilty plea, and it seems like what's maybe most remarkable about the plea is that it happened in a normal, run-of-the-mill criminal court, just like we used to use. Can you remind us how he ended up in court, how we got here with him? Exactly. Score one for the criminal justice system might be the sort of headline on this one. Um, Ali Almari was picked up after uh, uh, after 9/11 um, and was sus widely suspected of being a sleeper Al Qaeda agent who was dispatched to the United States. Um, had come here on September 10th, 2001, uh, and um, uh, was uh, believed to be plotting further a sort of second wave of attacks after 9-11. But rather than uh, charging him in a criminal court, um, the Bush administration designated him an enemy combatant, um, stripped him of all his constitutional rights. He was legally in the United States with a green card. He was enrolled at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, and threw him in a military brig, uh, denied him access to a lawyer, uh, subjected him to um, uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. He wasn't waterboarded, but there were aggressive techniques used and um, was, uh, wasn't charged with any crime. So this was a, a part of a pattern that was emerging post 9-11. Jose Padilla, who was a U.S. citizen, was the, was, had been previously designated an enemy combatant, essentially made an unperson. Uh, and this prompted a huge constitutional uh, uh, debate uh, and, and contest as to whether or not a president can simply unilaterally strip somebody of his rights. This was teed up to go to the Supreme Court this January when Barack Obama uh, took office and the Obama administration uh, terminated uh, the Supreme Court case by taking him out of military brig, charging him with uh, two counts of cons uh, uh, terrorism charges in Peoria. And amazingly, he pled guilty uh, to some pretty significant uh, set of facts, which we can get to in a moment. But the bottom line is, in less than two months, we've learned the truth about Ali Alamari, which is that he was, in fact, an al-Qaeda sleeper agent, something that for the previous five and a half years, the U.S. government had been unable to learn. And now, and we learned it through the normal criminal justice system without, without modification, uh, thanks to 9-11. Um, in terms of right. what he confessed to, what, or what he pled to, we know that he said he was in regular contact with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the supposed mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. I wonder, Mike, if that means that uh, Almari could be used as a witness against Khalid Sheikh Mohammed if Khalid Sheikh Mohammed ever goes on trial. Right, exactly. That may be the most significant part of this. First of all, I should say that the facts here are pretty significant, and people are going to find them hair-raising. Uh, this guy was attended an Afghan training camp, met Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was dispatched by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to the United States with specific instructions to get here by September 10th. He wasn't told why. He was just told, get in the country by September 10th. Um, he was given $10,000 by one of the financiers of the 9-11 attacks, uh, and then upon getting here, was in communication with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had done research about cyanide gases for potential 
cyanide gas attack in the United States. So this guy was, in fact, the dangerous dude that a lot of uh, uh, law enforcement and intelligence officials thought he was all along. In that sense, the Bush administration can argue we've been vindicated here. Uh, but the fact is it was only learned through the criminal justice system. Now, as a result of this guilty plea, um, uh, uh, Ali Alamari can be called into federal court at a trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and asked to simply recite the facts that he pled guilty to. And as a result, the criminal justice system, the Justice Department, is going to have direct evidence against Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as a al-Qaeda conspirator trying to attack the United States without having to use any of the tainted evidence it got through waterboarding and the other enhanced interrogation techniques they used against Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So we're en we end up at the end of this after all of these years and all of these constitutional crises, one after the other provoked by this system, ending up being able to charge people and bring evidence against them as if we are a normal country under the rule of law. Um, this right. Yeah. That's exactly the point that the Obama administration has been trying to make. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. And I'm a little too late, about three or four years. And it may not make much sense now that we are apart. But I'm going to stop pretending that I myself to realize that losing me could mean something like the tears in your eyes and I want to tell you I'm sorry and it's too late to start Today's story is called, We're All Torturers Now. Will anything about the U.S. torture scandal ever scandalize us again? And it's written by Dahlia Lithwick. In April of 2004, the world first learned that American soldiers in Iraq had abused detainees at the Abu Ghraib prison. Images first revealed on CBS and in The New Yorker showed prisoners standing hooded on a box with wires attached to their hands and genitals, piles of naked prisoners stacked into a pyramid, and detainees forced to simulate sexual acts upon one another, often with grinning GIs on hand to point and offer a jaunty thumbs up. The reaction to the Abu Ghraib scandal was swift and bipartisan. Within days, President George W. Bush had offered a public apology for the terrible and horrible acts, and his Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, took full responsibility for the scandal, promising that the offenders would be brought to justice because the victims are human beings. They were in U.S. custody. Our country had an obligation to treat them right. We didn't do that. With the exception of a handful of outliers, Rush Limbaugh said the abuse was no different than what happens at the Skull and Bones initiation, and Senator James Inhofe, a Republican of Oklahoma, claimed to be more outraged by the outrage than by the treatment. Americans reacted with almost universal surprise and revulsion. 
Earlier this month, President Barack Obama released four government memos written in 2002 and 2005, laying out legal justifications for prisoner abuse far more shocking than anything we had seen in the images from Abu Ghraib. Among other things, U.S. prisoners could be thrown into walls, waterboarded, shackled to the ceiling for hours, deprived of sleep for up to 11 days, and locked in coffin-like boxes. But the reaction could not have been more different. Former CIA Director Michael Hayden and former Attorney General Michael Mukasey quickly penned an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, condemning the release of the memos and defending the interrogation techniques. Former Vice President Dick Cheney insisted that the Obama administration now needs to put out the memos that showed the success of the effort. Conservative pundits casually likened waterboarding to prep school initiation and claimed that anyone who opposes prisoner abuse must simply hate America. The many ordinary Americans who want to see torture allegations investigated, evidently a majority of them in fact, have been dismissed by these same pundits as members of a bloodthirsty hard left. The president himself asks us all to move on, and if we're moving on, it can't have been all that bad. In some ways, it's easy to account for the differences between the response to Abu Ghraib in 2004 and the reaction to the torture memos this month. The torture at Abu Ghraib was documented in pictures rather than mere words, making it harder to play down or parse out. The OLC's torture memos, written in dispassionate legalese with much legal citation, are easier to defend than the brutal images of what they permitted, and that's why the CIA saw fit to destroy its interrogation tapes. The abuses at Abu Ghraib were of low-level prisoners, whereas the torture memos purport to target ticking time bombs, high-level terrorists with critical information about imminent strikes that continued to exist mainly in thought experiments and the mind of Dick Cheney. But there's one other fact that accounts for the whore differential between the torture memos and Abu Ghraib. And that's the fact of Abu Ghraib. Because, as I've suggested before, after Abu Ghraib, America seems to have lost its capacity to be truly shocked by anything America might do. As chilling and brutal as the images were at the time, they have, in the years between, lost much of their power to repel us. They've become, abetted by endless viewings of Jack Bauer on 24 and an interminable national debate about torture, emblems of what America is at least willing to consider doing. They are no longer postcards from the unthinkable. They are what we have become. When we first saw those now iconic photos from Abu Ghraib, most of us still had no notion that our government would degrade and terrorize prisoners. We had no inkling at that time that, in violation of domestic and international law, the U.S. government had already waterboarded Khalid Sheikh Mohammed 183 times in one month in 2003. Discovery of the sexual humiliation and stress positions used at Abu Ghraib represented a brief and terrible loss of innocence for Americans. But maybe you can lose your innocence only once. After Abu Ghraib, the idea that prisoners could be stripped naked and humiliated, or terrorized by dogs, or piled up like tinker toys, was not just in the backs of our minds, but also back on the table. Less than two years after we learned of the goings-on at Abu Ghraib, Congress had passed legislation legalizing many of the alternative interrogation tactics, the stress positions and sexual humiliations, that had so offended us months before. Prisoner abuse that flattened us in 2004 was normalized, to the point that it was open to political debate only a year later. 
And once you've been desensitized to hoodings and nudity, is a little simulated drowning or being bounced off a wall really all that much worse? The MPs caught abusing prisoners of Abu Ghraib later claimed that they did so because they were merely following orders from superiors, orders to soften up the detainees who would then be more amenable to interrogation. I keep wondering whether they inadvertently softened up the rest of us as well. We've become so casual about torture that we now openly debate its efficacy, something nobody would have dared to do in the first days after Abu Ghraib. The fight playing out between the left and the right now isn't, did we waterboard? We already knew we did. It is barely even, was it legal? Virtually nobody seriously argues that it was. The fight we're having in America now is, did it work? And if we manage to persuade ourselves that torture does work, whether it's legal or even moral, will no longer matter. And such tactics will never be able to horrify us again. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, many of you know what 555 means. It's the verbal shorthand for the help I need from you guys to keep the show going. And today, I wanted to focus on the third five and give you guys a little bit of uh, help, a couple of suggestions on how to spread the word to five of your friends. Of course, as you know, this is something you must do or else feel horribly guilty about listening to this show without giving anything back. So my idea for today was to come up with five simple ways that you could tell five friends about the show, but I accidentally came up with about eight. So here we go. Number one, become a fan of our Facebook page and make sure that all of your Facebook friends know that you love the show and uh, encourage them in whatever way you want to listen. Number two, if you have a Twitter account, first of all, you should be following best of the left on twitter second of all tweet about the show update your followers let them know that you're listening to the show maybe even let them know that they should listen to the show and be sure to include a link to our website if you have a blog there's a couple of things you can do or any website really if you have a blog maybe you want to take a minute or two to write a blog about us let your readers know about us and include a link to our website or just add our website to your blog roll so that it's always there. If you have a podcast or any kind of you know audio content uh, sharing thing like that, we actually have an audio uh, promo that you could play and your audience could hear the promo for our show. And I will actually tack that on to the end of this recording right here. It's available for download on the website, but I'll make it even easier. I'll put it in this show and you can just pull it out from there. This is an interesting one I had. Your email signature line. You know how people, you can uh, send out emails and have the same signature at the bottom. A lot of people put you know, interesting quotes or something like that from historical people. Well, you could include a little note about, uh, check out my favorite podcast, Best of the Left, at bestoftheleft.com. If you're anything like me, you probably use some sort of instant messaging system to communicate either with friends or coworkers or both. And depending on the system you use, there's probably a way to set your status, either available or away or on the phone or something like that. 
or you can customize it. And what my friends and I usually do is use that space to link to something interesting we like. So, you know, if you see an interesting YouTube video, you can just put the link to the YouTube video in there and then all your friends can uh, casually go check that out at their leisure. Well, if you're into that sort of thing, why not link to the best of the left and encourage everyone on your list to check it out? Now we're getting back to the standard stuff. Why don't you just tell the person sitting next to you? I don't. If you're on the bus, on the train, sitting at work, sitting around the dinner table with your family, whatever. Turn to the person next to you, tell them about the show. Around the water cooler at work, you're standing around complaining about TPS reports you got to fill out. Why not change the subject? Talk about something more interesting. Tell them about the Best of Left podcast. Take their mind away from the BS work they're having to do. They'll love you for it. And then finally, the old classic. Go ahead and send in a glowing iTunes review in iTunes. This really does help promote the show and gets us in front of more eyes, as they say in the business, and pumps up our status there. So there you go. Follow one or more or as many as you like of those 10 easy-to-follow steps, and you can be listening to this podcast guilt-free for the next six months at least until you feel that nagging urge to have to do it all over again. All right. Well, that's it for today. So coming to you from inside the beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Republicans crazy. When does the greed stop? What is the price? Challenge corporate power. Damn what's wrong with people in this country. Say hell no until these weak-kneed Democrats end this war. I get pigs, get pigs. This first step is a step right off a cliff. The best of the left podcast. He's a liar. You leave this country, sir. You claim to defend it. Pathetic. You can't claim support for our troops without supporting their mission, Mr. Speaker. God, that is so dishonest on so many levels. All those people who died on 9-11, and you guys want to use 9-11 as an excuse to do everything you want, attack Iraq and Iran, the people that have absolutely nothing to do with 9-11? Don't you dare talk about 9-11, please. This election is our chance to give the American people a reason to believe again. It is time now for Barack Obama. Imagine This American Life meets progressive talk radio. Each week we choose a political theme and bring you a variety of stories on that theme. Only at bestoftheleft.com.